Australia is seen and valued as a leader in disability inclusion in the development process, according to a 2017 evaluation of Australian Advocacy for Disability Inclusive Development, conducted by the Office of Development Effectiveness, or ODE, at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. In this forum, Peter Vasegi, First Assistant Secretary at ODE, commented on progress in evaluations by DFAT. The evaluation was then discussed by Karen Ovington, one of the authors, Mika Kontianen, Director of the Disability Section at DFAT, and Colin Allen, Chair of the International Disability Alliance. This was followed by closing comments from Jim Adams, Chair of DFAT's Independent Evaluation Committee. We hope you enjoy this engaging discussion of disability inclusion and funding advocacy within international fora. Thank you, everyone. I'm Terence Wood. I'm a research fellow here at the Development Policy Centre, and I have the good fortune of welcoming you today to this uh, Dev Policy ODE Evaluation Forum. First, I want to acknowledge the traditional indi Indigenous custodians of the land upon which we meet today, and I want to pay my respect to their elders past, present and future. I also want to thank you all for coming along today. And in addition, I want to thank the Office of Development Effectiveness at DFAT for their ongoing partnership with us in holding these regular evaluation forums. Uh, particular thanks goes out to Jennifer Noble, who's been uh, an ongoing help at ODE as we've uh, set up this particular forum. I also want to thank all of today's speakers for their engagement and for coming along. So thank you, Peter, Karen, Mika, Colin and Jim. Uh, and I want to thank my colleagues, particularly Sachini Muller and uh, Cleo Fleming, for their assistance in bringing this event together. You can see the program behind me. Lucky for you all, uh, my job is a brief one. In a second, I'll hand over to Peter Vasigi, who's going to speak to you about progress in improving evaluations in DFAT. After Peter speaks, we're going to have a brief question and answer session, and then we're going to move to our main panel for today. Uh, this will be the discussion of the evaluation Unfinished Business, which looks at DFAT's assistance to advocacy for disability inclusive development. It's a particularly interesting evaluation, both because it focuses on an important area, disability-inclusive development, but also because it touches upon a much broader issue, and that is the issue of funding advocacy and successfully funding advocacy within international fora. Uh, so I think it's an interesting evaluation. I I'm sure you will too. Uh, and at this point, I'm going to hand over... Um, and, you know, yes, and finally, after the uh, evaluation's covered, Jim Adams, is gonna, who's the chair of the Independent Evaluation Committee, will bring matters to a close. Uh, like you, I'm sure I'm looking forward to hearing Peter and Jim talk and to the panel discussion of the evaluation. So I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to hand over to Peter. Uh, welcome, Peter. Thank you. So I'll also help you get set up. Cheers, Jim. Well, thank you very much, uh, Terence, and thank you, Stephen, for co-hosting our forum again. We do this two or three times a year, and I think from our end, we find the interaction with the evaluation community and more broadly really beneficial, not just for our own work, but in terms of learning from you about what we could do better. As Terence said, today is going to be mainly about the evaluation that we published in December that was led by Karen Ovington in ODE around... Australia's, uh, the effectiveness of Australia's advocacy for disability inclusive development in global and multilateral fora. But I wanted to take the opportunity uh, for about 15 minutes or 20 minutes just to talk about what's happening in evaluation more broadly within, <coughs> within DFAT. And uh, 
Just to, before I start that, also to recognise the members of the Independent Evaluation Committee who are with us, um, Jim Adams, uh, Wendy Jarvie and Stephen Creese. We had a meeting yesterday and I can report that they're holding our feet to the fire when it comes to things such as pesky things such as evidence and stuff like that and methodology. So um, they're a terrific group to engage with and I'm really pleased they're here today. Um, some of you might recall, um, I think we came here maybe a year ago and gave the findings of a review of the quality of evaluations that DEEF had undertaken in 2014. And this is really much looking at the um, um, evaluations that our, our program areas do. Um, in DFAT, there's two types of aid evaluations, ones that my office do, which we call strategic evaluations. They're usually based on a theme or a, a big issue, usually covers a number of different countries, you know, over a number of um, different sectors. And they, they, they're big pieces, they're overseen by the IEC, and we do about five or six of them a year. But the bulk of evaluation work that happens in DFAT are actually undertaken by our geographic and program areas. And this is really important. It means that um, our own programs are evaluating what they're doing and learning from those, um, those findings in terms of improving policy and programming. So they're very important. They do about 40 to 50 of those evaluations each year. But what that review in 2016 found was that whilst those program evaluations were of pretty good quality in terms of the evidence they were um, presenting, the methodologies they used, what was really disturbing or worrying for us was only about half had management responses and less than a third or around a third had been published. So I think our concern from that was there was no way of following up systematically on the findings and what actions were taken to address the findings. There was no sharing of lessons or knowledge, both within the department but more broadly. And it's, let's face it, it was pretty poor accountability and pretty poor transparency. And I think certainly comments from... Um, Stephen and Dev Policy over a number of years, as well as the IEC, raises as a particular risk and concern for the operations of the aid program. So what we did um, in late 2016 was that the DFAT executive um, endorsed a new aid evaluation policy, which is all about improving the quality, utility and transparency of evaluation work. And we kind of did that by changing the incentives around evaluation and by strengthening senior management oversight of the evaluation program. And the key features, I suppose, in a nutshell, was that we moved from a compliance regime whereby we said any investment over $3 million had to have an independent evaluation sometimes through its life. We changed it to say, we're not going to tell you what to evaluate. We're going to, check, we're going to ask you to evaluate what you need to evaluate based on need and use. So we changed the incentives to make it more relevant to programs to do evaluations. We also asked that evaluations were identified in advance, and a, a, bit, a bit of a, a quid pro quo for giving that licence to evaluate what they wanted to do. We wanted programs to tell us in advance what they'd evaluate, and ODE would do a little a sort of a, a, an examination to see whether these evaluations were actually looking at the most pressing issues in that program to make sure they weren't dodging the difficult investments, if you like. And then all the evaluations had to be had to be approved and endorsed at a very senior level within the, in those geographic divisions, in fact, by those division heads. We then compiled all those evaluations into an overall evaluation plan that was approved by the Secretary of DFAT. So we certainly changed both the incentives but also the oversight and approval mechanisms for it. That first plan was published in early 2017. It, it identified 46 evaluations at that time. 
Through the year, there were some changes um, to changing circumstances. Some evaluations of the original plan were deferred to 2018 because of delays in partners and a whole range of issues, and other evaluations were put into its place. So by the time of the, by the end of the year, we had 43 evaluations in the evaluation plan, um, and we've just published the result of that 2017 plan, and we had, by the end of 2017, 41 of those 43 evaluations had been published, which was a 95% publication rate. Um, as I said, we've published that, that outcome with all the links to all the evaluations. And I just might just show a slide, oh, it's already there, um, on what we think is a pretty good result in terms of the publication of evaluations. When we did the um, uh, review of the 2012 evaluation, we only found that something like 40, okay, that number down, 48% of evaluations were published. 2014, and I think most of you will remember there was some upheaval within DFAT and OSAID in 2014, so um, that figure dropped to 36%. But in 2017, we're now talking about 95%. And I think the really, um, really important change too is that we're actually coming up, up front and telling the public um, and everybody what we're going to publish in advance. So the ability to, to, to engage on those evaluations, to know what's going on, um, et cetera, and to follow it is, is really quite um, in a much better place than we were previously. Um, we've now published the 2018 plan, so it's our second plan. Again, this is all evaluations that programs themselves want to do. It's not us telling them what to do. And there's 56 publications, so uh, uh, evaluations listed in that new plan. We had a bit of a concern about the increase because, you know, I'd rather under-promise and over-deliver. That's usually a good mantra when it comes to this sort of stuff. But it was interesting, is programs themselves wanted to do more evaluations. And it was across the board. It wasn't any particular division, although the Pacific Division in particular are doing a lot more evaluation work this year. But we actually went back to a number of divisions and said, do you really put this money in your plan and be committed to them? And a very strong response was, well, yes, we do. Um, we'll see how that is around November this year <laughs> when we, we come up with, um, with, the, um, with uh, results in terms of publication. But I think um, going up from 43 to 56, I think over time I'd, I'd like us a number around, I think, more of the 40 to 45. I'd focus on a number of good quality evaluations than, than sort of the quantity side. But I think as, a, as an indication of how well the policy has been sort of accepted by the program areas. I think the fact that they want to put more evaluations in rather than less is, is quite a good indication. Um, we're also quite happy with the, um, the coverage. So um, the two things we looked at in terms of coverage was whether we had coverage across the geographic regions. And as you can see there, um, they're broadly the Pacific and Southeast Asia broadly have the same amount of money, a bit more in the Pacific now these days, I think, following the 2014 cuts. But um, I think when you look at those sort of um, figures, uh, depending on our spend, et cetera, I think that's a, that's a reasonable coverage geographically. And in terms of um, aid theme, um, I think it's, it's not bad. I mean, this is only over two years. I'd probably want to look at this over a longer period of time because year on year there'll be sort of changes. But the black dots... Um, the percent of the program that we estimate is spending those particular, these are the six pillars of the current aid, evaluate, uh, current aid policy. So the black dots is the percentage of the program which is spent on it and the green is the percentage of evaluations that were, that were sort of... Um, so you can see at the moment we're probably doing a lot more in infrastructure and trade 
um, and a bit less in in governance and um, building resilience. But as I said, over over a period of time, I expect that to kind of even out. So we're, we're quite quite happy then with the both the geographic um, and the, and the and the um, thematic coverage. Um, so I think overall, we're extremely satisfied with the implementation of the first year of the aid evaluation policy. We've overcome problems in terms of management responses because all those published evaluations have management responses and they've all been published. In fact, if, if, you, if you said to me 12 months ago we'd, I'd be reporting results like this, I would have, I would have taken it quite, quite gladly. But that's kind of the only half of the story now. I think for us, the challenge for us now is to have a look at the quality of the evaluations that are being produced um, we're doing that right now. And I think importantly too is trying to work out the link between the evaluation findings and recommendations and how they're feeding into policies and programming. But I'm going to swap there, but I think um, 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 I'm happy to answer sort of any, any questions or, or points of clarification. Yep. And Jim's done a covering note to it. And it's got all the all the variables the link. Because one of the things I think that Stephen rightly pointed out was the fact that they might be published, but they're damn hard to find. <laughs> I must confess, we had to find them ourselves too. So we've compiled them all into one for the 2017. So we've got links to the all the evaluations um, link, but we're going to do work to make sure there's one spot on the on the page where you can go and say region, you know, year um, and theme, and try to find some sort of um, you know useful ways to to categorise that it makes it easier for people to sort of um, research and, and look for evaluations that they might be interested in. Um, so yeah. So you spoke there in your first slide using percentages. I was a little unclear. What happened to the absolute number of evaluations in the first year that you introduced the new planning system? So the absolute number of evaluations were fewer than the absolute numbers in the previous years. Um, we done some, but we didn't put them up because the numbers are a bit ropey. With the, the current numbers, we're quite systematic in terms of what's an evaluation. It has to have these certain features. In the previous years, we've looked at sort of They've had key features, but they might not be as sort of you know rigorous. So they're more illustrative than directly comparable. Um, and uh, I think that the the other thing about those figures is that they're a point in time. So when we looked at the 2014 publications, we looked I think around in November 2015. How many of those 2014 public evaluations we published? There might be more now. We're not sure. Um, and the second bit is that um, the current when we did the last year, we did it from at the end of 2017 calendar year. So we've already now published one of the two, the PNG Roads one, and then the climate one is supposed to come out um, in around probably next month now. So they're, they're sort of, they're, they're usefully comparable, but they're not strictly comparable in terms of, um, you know, absolute numbers. But we, but we sort of also are kind of keen to sort of almost, we, we wanted to have fewer, better quality evaluations as opposed to what we had at the moment, which at the previously, which were sort of, you know, a lot of reviews and evaluations that were sort of not published, 
not completed to a satisfactory standard, no management responses, etc. So, question. And so then one final question for me, if there's none, uh, no other questions from the audience, is simply just, uh, what's your sense when it comes to organisational culture within DFAT? Do you think that's changing and are we starting to see a greater appreciation of the importance of evaluations within the department as a whole? Or is it just simply a product of plan? Yeah, I don't, I don't have any data to pull on, but my sense is um, it's a lot better than it was, say, when I first started about two years ago. And I think a lot of it has to do with the leadership that our secretary, Frances Adamson, had championed this um, quite, quite significantly. And I came from the old aid side, so I can sort of say this. We were quite anarchic when it came to, like, if the Director-General said something to do something, and some of us would do it, it was if it was sort of in our interest or we thought it was a good idea, but often not, you wouldn't. There's a bit of a non-violent, non-cooperation. In the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Secretary puts us, I think, everyone does it. Like, it's quite, it's quite hierarchical and that sort of thing. And the Secretary's um, personal interest in this and her pushing it, our major division head meetings, et cetera, has been a, a quite a, I think, probably one of the most, if not the most, contributing factor to that result. The extent to which now programs have these evaluations and see value, I think I, I, I'd be lying if I said there's been an extraordinarily culture shift in the, in the department. I think it is probably changing. The people are doing these evaluations and the, and the, and the sun still shines the next day. You know, they're not necessarily bad things and that, that they're actually quite powerful in terms of franking results, telling them what works as well as informing, you know, where things aren't going as well. So I think it's, I think it's, it's it's getting there, but are we? I, I don't think we're there yet. If you know what I mean, in terms of a full, um, a fully fledged evaluation culture across the department. All right. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you, Peter. That's an encouraging tale to hear at the beginning of our presentation today. And uh, with uh, you having given your presentation, we'll move on now to the main event, so to speak, which is the discussion of the evaluation unfinished business. So the first speaker we're going to have will be uh, from the evaluation team. So that's you, Cara. Um, so you are actually chairing this. Okay, uh, I'll chair this. So I'll uh, sit down perhaps <laughs> and leave it to you. And uh, hey, you're fine. So you're doing a good job. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, as I said, um, uh, I'll chair this session. I'm really pleased to be chairing this session on our evaluation on um, our global advocacy on disability inclusive developments unfinished business. And I think what's interesting, as, as Terence pointed out originally, was um, one is the subject matter, um, disability inclusive development. 15% of the world's population has some form of disability. We know that they're disproportionately represented in the bottom billion. So if you are talking about sustainable development goals, addressing inequality, reducing poverty, etc., you have to include and incorporate the needs and, and, and challenges of people living with disability. The second thing that we were very interested about was the fact that um, what we were trying to evaluate was our efforts in trying to influence global development <coughs> policy frameworks and the policies and plans of multilateral organisations. We spent a lot of effort, like intellectual effort, not a lot of money in that sort of thing, but an important bit of money, 
but a lot of um, a lot of staff time in our in our missions in places like Geneva, in New York, etc., who've engaged on these big um, global development frameworks, but also work on a daily basis with the big multilateral humanitarian and development agencies. So from an evaluation point of view, there's technical challenges. I mean, how do you measure and how do you attribute the work of Australia amongst 170 other countries in trying to influence these things? So as a, as a technical challenge that um, we thought was um, interesting to undertake. Um, I'm particularly pleased that uh, Mr Colin Allen, who's the chair of the International Disability Alliance and president of the World Federation of the Deaf, is able to join us today, along with members of, as I mentioned, the IEC, um, uh, headed by um, Jim Adams. Um, for simplicity's sake, I'll, I'll introduce each of the panel members before they speak. Um, and, and our first speaker today, as Terence said, is, is Dr Karen Ovington. Karen's one of our gun evaluators in ODE. Um, she's worked as a scientist for many years researching parasitic diseases, so parasitic bosses too, I suspect, and lecturing in biochemistry. She then worked in a research and evaluation unit in the social and indigenous group at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare before moving to AusAid now DFAT six years ago to work in ODE. And she's completed a broad range of evaluations in ODE. Probably most recently for you was the really, really excellent um, evaluation, our response to Cyclone PAM in Vanuatu, which actually led to some significant changes in our response both to Cyclone Winston and the Cyclone in Tonga. So, uh, and I think today she'll present on the ODE evaluation, um, on its methodology, um, findings and, and recommendations, around 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Australia has been a proponent of disability inclusive development since 2009 when the first Development for All strategy was launched. In 2015, the Foreign Minister launched the second Disability uh, Development for All strategy. Both of these strategies have aimed to improve the lives of people with disabilities in two ways. Firstly, by making Australian uh, development disability inclusive, and secondly, by having broader impacts through global advocacy to, um, to muster resources in support of disability inclusive development. ODE is evaluating both of these components of our work, but today what I'm going to discuss is just the advocacy work. So the evaluation we did looked at the effectiveness of Australians' advocacy for disability inclusive development. What I'm going to do today is quickly describe some of the problems that you can encounter when you're trying to assess the effectiveness of advocacy work. I'll then describe the approach and methodology used by ODE. I'll talk about some of the overall findings and then race through some specific findings before a quick conclusion and a listing of the recommendations. Beliefs about disability are deeply entrenched and 
will obviously take time to change. And this is the case with most advocacy work. It takes time uh, because the critical step is changing those attitudes. And so when you see results, you see small changes in attitudes, just incremental changes, which are very hard to detect. Secondly, the effectiveness of advocacy depends as much on the receptiveness of targets as it does on the quality of the advocacy itself. In some situations, at some times, a series of factors can align and so that the targets are particularly receptive to messages. The third, oh, at, in the, at those times, change can happen very rapidly. So there might be periods where nothing happens, but then you suddenly get a lot of changes uh, that are noticeable. Thirdly, advocacy is often more effective when it's delivered by multiple advocates and when there's a whole lot of different approaches used. This makes it difficult to assess the contribution or of any particular uh, advocate or attribute uh, progress to the, any particular advocacy work. Lastly, changes in beliefs and attitudes are very hard to measure. So in, in response to these um, difficulties and also in response to having a budget that was limited and a, quite a tight time frame for the evaluation, we devised this following approach. Australia has undertaken a broad range of explicit actions to promote disability-inclusive development, but we clearly, and these have been at the country, regional and global level, but we didn't have the capacity to look at all of them. So we decided to focus on Australia's global advocacy, as this has been prioritised by DFAT and is where most of the effort and funding has been directed. As I said, time uh, change takes time, so rather than just look at the current strategy, we looked over the period of what has been achieved over the period of both strategies, about a decade. And then um, recognising the difficulties associated with attribution, we looked at the contribution made by Australian advocacy amongst that of other advocates, and we didn't make an attempt to identify which components of Australian advocacy had been most effective. Uh, we also, um, to frame the evaluation and pinpoint some specific outcomes that we could measure or assess, we developed a theory of change. This is a bit complicated, but I'll, I'll just go through it. So we, divide, we identified there were four ways in which Australia had uh, advocated at the global uh, level. And these are shown in blue at the bottom. So the first of these is direct advocacy by its representatives of the Australian government with development partners or in, or in international policy processes and also in support of collective, collective advocacy. The second component is financial and other support for international DPOs, which was intended to increase their capacity so they became stronger advocates and started to lead and participate in collective advocacy for inclusion. The third component was financial and other support to build coalitions and support other advocates. And this, again, was expected to strengthen collective advocacy for inclusion. The fourth component is financial support for data organisations 
so that methodology for collecting disability data was produced. So these uh, uh, are the short-term outcomes that we looked at, shown in yellow. And then we also looked at intermediate outcomes, shown up the top in um, darker yellow. So uh, the only one I want to... I've got some more on the next slide, but here I just want to talk about this one. So when there's methodology for... Uh, methodology for obtaining disability data has been produced, it would be expected that there, there is improved data and this can be used as evidence to change beliefs and attitudes. And just If you imagine this slide on the top of the other one. Oops. So, um, as I've said, beliefs and attitudes are hard to measure. So rather than trying to do that, we looked at these... Uh, outcomes which we expected to have occurred if beliefs and attitudes are genuinely changed. So what we looked at as intermediate outcomes were whether development policies had become more inclusive and whether people with disabilities and their organisations had increased voices. We also, both of these could be expected to result in development practices being, oops, being more inclusive. evaluation consisted of the review of documentation provided by DFAT and partners and also uh, we looked at some international publications and published evaluation reports. We carried out 36 semi-structured interviews. These were with past and current DFAT staff and also partner organisations and uh, two bilateral agencies. Now, all of the organisations we interviewed, except for the bilateral agencies, were funded by DFAT. In interviews with these organisations, we asked them specifically about the work that DFAT had funded them to do, but we also asked them about other components of DFAT's uh, advocacy work that they weren't directly involved with. As an example of that, we asked UN agencies to make uh, to comment or give us their opinions about the work that DFAT has done to support DPOs. Uh, a third um, component of the evaluation was a survey, which was done to get broader, pers broader perspectives than we could get through the interviews. Um, in, in the survey, um, the survey covered the broad range of advocacy actions that um, DFAT's undertaken, so it was highly unlikely that all the people we sent it to could have uh, knowledge sufficient to um, provide useful commentary. So in all parts of the section, there was an easy opt-out opt option if they didn't want to complete it. We found that we got a 70... After extensive follow-up, we managed to get a 75% uh, response rate and we were particularly pleased. Oops, dear. We were particularly pleased. We had a, um, a large number of responses from other bilateral agencies. Uh, so in the survey, we have about a fairly decent proportion of them are not haven't ha, are not have not been funded by DFAT. In the survey, we also left um, options where we asked them respondents to rate. When we asked them to rate um, aspects of DFAT's work, we also asked them to provide an example to justify their rating. And these, these 
examples provided a very useful source of information for the evaluation, and they also provided the source of quotes uh, that we've uh, printed in the report. Now, for advocacy to be effective, an advocate has to be credible. So we looked at DFAT's credibility as a disability advocate. Now, in all the charts I'm going to show, they sh uh, they're the results of the survey. I've used them. I've used the survey, survey extensively in this talk because it's nice because I've got these charts. But what we found in the survey was backed up by interviews and our review of documentation. I'm just focusing on the survey because there's some nice numbers and pictures. All of the column graphs I'll show. Oops, dear. Uh, oh, dear, sorry. Sorry about it. This is um, the new generation, too much pressing too quickly. Oh. All of the charts are a plot of the percentage of survey respondents who provided a rating. So there'll be a number of them who didn't provide a rating. They're excluded. So it's just of those who provided a rating and, what the, and, the, and how many of them rated um, each category. So here we can see in terms of Australia's credibility as an advocate, 50% of those who provided a rating said we were Australia was a credible ad advocate and the other 50% said Australia was a highly credible advocate. We, in the, in the evaluation, we used the information we had to determine what were the factors that had made Australian advocacy credible. And we found that the domestic, Australia's domestic um, disability policies, and in particular the NDIS and the Development for All Strategies, were frequently quoted as a foundation for Australia's credibility. Stakeholders were also, uh, also emphasised the importance of the fact that Australia had modelled best practice, in particular by modelling the principle, nothing about us without us. Um, another factor that was mentioned was that Australia advocacy has been in strong and consistent over the period of both of the development strategies. And then credibility was also um, said to have been produced by, because Australia not only advocated but supported other advocates and backed rhetoric with funding. I just want to move on to looking at the overall effectiveness of Australian advocacy. Um, before I start, I just want to mention a couple of things, because you could say, well, you know, if, if the effectiveness it depends on um, a whole variety of factors and difficult to assess, how have we, and how have, how have respondents come to these conclusions? Well, I guess we were very fortunate in this evaluation, because when we started to look at it, we found that in many situations, Australia has been the strongest or only advocate. We also found that in um, a lot of different um, scenarios, DFAT has been the, the largest, only, or most consistent financial supporter. And those, those, both of those factors really stood out a lot and has made our job in this evaluation much easier. So this chart here shows that by mostly um, stakeholders felt that Australia was an effective or highly effective advocate. And again, down the bottom, there's the key factors that have contributed to this. Um, again, um, credibility, but also 
as well as um, the advocacy being sustained, what was noticeable that Australian advocacy had been flexible and it had been sustained, but as opportunities arose, they had been exploited and used to make it more effective. I don't have time really to go into the examples of that. The other um, key thing is that Australian advocacy is, is effective because DFAT has, by, by and large, selected the right organisations to partner with and used appropriate approaches and then used relatively small, small amounts of funding, funding to support the most pressing needs. Another factor that has contributed to the effectiveness that we um, uh, recognised was that not only has DFAT partnered with DPOs, but it's been the nature of that partnership. It's been a very much a two-way uh, exercise in that DFAT has learnt a lot about disability inclusion and what is needed by working with DPOs and used that to inform its practices and work in more effective ways. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, DFAT's also worked in coalitions, which has been uh, effective, helped build effectiveness. Many uh, of the people we interviewed stated that the staff working for DFAT in this area have been highly committed and energetic, and it's through their enthusiasm that DFAT has managed to be uh, effective. We were interested to see if Australia was considered and to be a leader in, the, in this space and if there was any evidence for this. And see here, most respondents said Australia was a significant or highly influential leader. When we pursued this to try and identify how um, Australia had been a leader, we came up with the factors shown on this chart. So, for example, Australia was considered to be innovative, and an example of that that was frequently cited was the development for all strategies in themselves. Australia was praised for its willingness to take risks and by being the first funder, and an example of that is the UN Partnership for the Rights of People with Disabilities, in which we were the first uh, large funder, and we came in, and it was that... DFAT came in then that others were more willing to um, also take risks. DFAT has also pushed the agenda by being ambitious and an example of this ambition is uh, taking off on the not so easy task of reforming UN agencies. DFAT set out to make uh, UN agencies the way work of UN agencies more disability inclusive and has actually contributed to success in that area. Now I just, because I don't have much time, I'm going to race through some specific examples of um, what Australia has done. In the period from 2015 to 16, there was a whole series of global policy processes underway and these were intended to reform humanitarian action and development policies. DFAT recognised that this was a time when there were, the agencies were likely to be receptive to change and exploited these uh, processes uh, in, in attempts to make uh, humanitarian and development assistance more disability inclusive. 
the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development is an example of one of these policy processes. And you can see here, Australia was considered to have you know, been a quite substantial um, advocate and about 90% thought of our respondents thought that Australia had been very influential or very influential in the process. As a result, it's fair to conclude that Australia has, the advocacy work by Australia has contributed to disability being mentioned specifically in five of the sustainable development goals and also that it's also specifically mentioned 11 times in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Another example of a policy process where DFAT has advocated with some success is the World Humanitarian Summit. Again, we see here that about 80% thought we were a significant advocate and uh, about 90% thought that um, Australian advocacy was very influential. I've got a quote here from a humanitarian agency about DFAT's um, effectiveness in this process, in the World, World Humanitarian Summit. The Australian government played a pivotal role in ensuring that disability and inclusion was profiled throughout the World Humanitarian Summit process. We believe its advocacy directly contributed to disability being included as a formal side event at the global consultation, a step which launched multi-stakeholder collaboration on the Charter on Inclusion of Persons with a Disability. Now, I just want to quickly mention one more specific example, uh, and it's one I, I have to cover because it's important, but it's going to be very brief. Um, in its advocacy work, deliberate DFAT has identified uh, key uh, strategic partnerships with DPOs to push its advocacy agenda. Uh, and you see here that stakeholders felt that Australia had been a strong uh, or significant supporter of uh, DPOs and that this was considered to be very effective. Uh, the DPOs themselves gave us some assessment of this and I've got the quote up the top. Through DFAT support for DPOs, our voices are now heard. We are changing policies, holding governments to account and lobbying for increased funding. Now, at the global level, DFAT's key partner has been the International Disability Alliance. DFAT has funded this alliance since 2010 by providing uh, core, fund, core and other funding on a three-year cycle. Uh, IDA said that the um, flexibility and the security of this funding was particularly important to their operations. Got now um, two comments made by UN agencies on how on the role that IDA is now able to play. Firstly, six years ago, IDA needed support. IDA is now well established and a key UN agency. And secondly, IDA has become one of the key strategic partners of most of the UN system and plays a key role in advocacy on the rights of persons with disabilities. Now, I just want to round this um, talk out. A decade of sustained advocacy and leadership by DFAT, among others, has, has helped to increase the acceptance of the need 
for development to be disability inclusive. This has only recently led to changes in development policies and given people with disabilities increased voice. The gains made aren't secured and further progress in disability inclusion could easily falter. Because of this, we've made, we made four overarching recommendations. Firstly, that DFAT should continue its global advocacy as the evaluation found that advocacy, international advocacy is needed now as much as it was a decade ago. Secondly, we felt the evaluation recommended that um, DFAT should continue to support Australian leadership. And this is because this leadership has been effective, is much needed, and has had positive effects for Australia too, increasing Australia's profile in a positive way. Thirdly, we um, suggested that DFAT should look across its, op its, its operations and identify where there are more opportunities for advocacy, as the evaluation did find some areas where these had been missed. I haven't had time to go into that today. And lastly, um, we made a recommendation which has the distinction, I'm not sure if Peter agrees, but has the distinction of being the first ODE um, recommendation to not be recommended, which I think is fine, um, that the DFAT should end funding to the Statistics Division of UNDESA as this has not been uh, effective. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Carol. We'll have questions at the end of all the um, presentations. But I think one of the things that struck me about the, the recommendations too was that um, the continuation for advocacy which shifts from the policy development and the policy framing to really advocacy about implementation and monitoring implementation. And I think that's a really important distinction that the, the evaluation um, um, came up with. And I quite like it if um, programs disagree with our recommendations. If they agree all the time, I think it's all a bit of a stitch up. So I think the fact we might have something that's uh, disagreed, as long as there's good reasons, that's fine. Um, uh, but um, I don't mind at all if um, our recommendations aren't agreed with. Um, our second speaker today is Mika Kontianen. Uh, Mika is currently um, Director of Disability at DFAT's Development Policy Division. He is responsible for managing policy advice on disability inclusion and disability rights in Australia's international advocacy, diplomatic efforts and aid program investments, and for supporting implementation of the Don't For All strategy. Meek will offer his remarks on the evaluation findings and commentary on Australia's international advocacy work. Thanks, Meek. Thank you, Peter, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm going to save you the trouble of looking at PowerPoint presentations because I don't have one. I'll just speak. Um, so as Peter mentioned, I have the pleasure and the privilege of leading the highly motivated team in Australia that leads our international engagement on disability inclusion. Um, we're not the only people in the department to work on this. Uh, we work very collaboratively with a lot of areas, but most of the work around our international engagement is driven through my team. And if you are at all familiar with the Australian Foreign Policy White Paper, 
you would note that disability is now acknowledged in the white paper as a cross-cutting priority for Australia's international engagement in human rights, in humanitarian action and in development as well. So it's great to see that uh, that strong commitment uh, documented so clearly in uh, such a key policy document as the white paper. Um, I actually feel as if I almost should go to the last point of the last presentation, first of all, uh, and explain uh, that last recommendation. So um, well, I'm going to be divert a little bit from what I was going to say and address that. So one of the recommendations was that DFAT should act decisively and end funding to the UN Statistics Division. Um, the issue there is that one of the key development issues uh, around disability is around data. And there is a very complex uh, and somewhat politically sensitive debate happening internationally around what are the methodologies one should be using to monitor, uh, to disaggregate data by disability, particularly for the purposes of monitoring implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, the guidance for that, how to do that, should be coming from the UN Statistics Division. Australia has a partnership with the UN Statistics Division to enable them to do this. We also have partnerships with other stakeholders to uh, promote uh, and promulgate various tools for disability data collection. Unfortunately, the UN Statistics Division hasn't been performing uh, particularly well in this regard, and many of our international stakeholders have been questioning Australia as to quite frankly, why are you bothering with the UN Statistics Division because they're not doing anything meaningful. Um, we disagreed with the recommendation, not because we're not listening to our international stakeholders, but because there is actually a process within DFAT to actually evaluate uh, partnerships that aren't performing well and it would have been premature of us to simply just cut off a relationship with a UN entity without going through due process. And I'll leave it at that. Um, now, um, one of the key elements of our international advocacy uh, does evolve around uh, engaging with disabled people's organisations. Um, it's not only about implementing the principle of nothing about us without us, but it is about how we can be more effective in our international advocacy and indeed in the delivery of our aid program. Um, Without meaningful engagement with DPOs, it's not possible for any development partner to actually properly understand the unique barriers and challenges to delivering an inclusive aid program or an inclusive humanitarian response. So we feel that we actually do need to work closely with DPOs and build their capacity to engage with us so that we can better deliver an aid program that's disability inclusive, but also so that we can be more effective in our international advocacy. Uh, our international advocacy at the global level in the UN, at the regional level through forums such as uh, the Pacific Islands Forum or ASEAN, uh, and uh, our advocacy that takes place at national and subnational levels, which incidentally weren't covered in this particular evaluation. So we have a number of partnerships, uh, ongoing partnerships with various organisations that help us build the capacity of disabled people's organisations in developing countries and internationally to make them more effective advocates. They include the International Disability Alliance, and we'll be hearing from Colin Allen shortly, but also through organisations such as the Disability Rights Advocacy Fund, which is a US-based foundation 
that helps build the capacity of sub-national DPOs in developing countries. We work very closely with the Pacific Disability Forum, which is an umbrella organisation in the Pacific uh, of disabled people's organisations. And from time to time, we also take other approaches to building the capacity of DPOs to make them more effective advocates for their rights. This includes working on uh, arrangements around electoral processes with the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, and also working directly at posts through our embassies in places like Jakarta and Delhi, for example, where our missions work closely with particular disabled people's organisations and have arrangements with them to provide core funding so that they can be more effective in their advocacy and in the support that they provide us. Indeed, one of the things that I've noticed over time is that because of the close collaboration we have with DPOs, uh, for example, the International Disability Alliance, when a technical issue comes up in advocacy around how does issue X impact on people with disabilities, and we don't really know the answer to that question, we can easily reach out to our DPO partners and they will give us inside knowledge of what does this really mean for people with disabilities, something which um, bureaucrats, um, academics or people without disabilities might not readily be able to see. So a major focus is indeed around um, building the capacity of DPOs to help us to be more effective advocates and for them to be more effective advocates. Uh, the other area that I wanted to comment on is um, a, a great deal of our advocacy efforts are, have been and continue to be far focused around UN reform. Uh, we feel that um, the impact that you could have long-term on the lives of people with disabilities uh, in developing countries can be substantial if you can actually help change the environment in which policies and programs are being delivered. And so um, with that in mind, we uh, have uh, the partnership, the UN Partnership on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which Karen mentioned, but we also work um, uh, elsewhere within the UN system. Uh, for example, we have a very close um, partnership, uh, relationship and support the mandate of the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, she is an incredibly effective advocate within the UN system to try and drive change. Um, within the UN system to make it more disability inclusive. Um, and working with her is a, an excellent way of multiplying the, uh, the effects and the impact of Australian advocacy alone. Um, generally speaking, as the evaluation shows, a lot of our effort goes also into influencing other partners. And some of the um, very welcome recommendations from the evaluation highlighted where there have been gaps in the work that we have been doing in our evaluation, sorry, in our advocacy work. Uh, for example, our engagement with the development banks, uh, the Asian uh, ADB, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, and um, now early stages, the AIIB, the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, if I get the acronym right. Um, and so backed up by the findings of the evaluation, uh, the department is actually looking more closely at how we can better engage with those development banks to influence them. And the evaluation was quite right in highlighting um, the gaps there because when you think about it, the amount of funding that uh, these development banks pump into developing countries is massive. And if you can make those multi-million, multi-hundred million dollar investments more inclusive of people with disabilities, 
um, infrastructure investments, governance, governance uh, investments, health investments. If you can make them more inclusive, you will over time have a fundamental impact for the better uh, on the lives of people with disabilities in these developing countries. A lot of our work is greatly supported and helped along by the strong political commitment that we actually have here in Australia for this work. Uh, the foreign minister launched the strategy uh, and despite her incredibly busy schedule, um, she's one very busy woman, uh, she does actually take the time whenever she can when she's develop visiting developing countries to actually look at disability issues. But most of the work in the department, in the government now is being driven, in fact, by the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Senator the Honourable Conchetta Favanti-Wells, who has um, really um, taken a strong hold of disability inclusive development issues and is quite energised by the topic and has been driving the department and asking us to actually do more. And she's been lending her personal weight to the work that we actually do. Um, in fact, um, both the Foreign Minister and the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, together with the Prime Minister, will be in London next week for the annual uh, for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, Chogham. And while in London for Chogham, um, Senator Firavanti Wells uh, will be undertaking quite a number of activities that will be advocating around disability inclusive development. Um, for example, uh, in her meetings with her UK counterparts, she'll be uh, talking about what Australia and the UK can do collaboratively to uh, further progress this work, and I'll come back to the Global Disability Summit in just a moment. Um, and she is um, also uh, participating in a, um, uh, a panel in London uh, hosted by Difford and PwC on assistive technologies, which we hope will actually help galvanise some new ideas around how to uh, better deliver affordable assistive technologies to people with disabilities where they need it. So where are our efforts actually focused at the moment and uh, what are we doing uh, to build on the findings of the evaluation? Uh, there's three particular areas that I'd like to just uh, speak about um, as an example. The first is GLAD, which is an acronym I like. A nice positive acronym, GLAD, the uh, Global Action on Disability Network, which Australia is the co-chair of alongside the International Disability Alliance. So GLAD is uh, a really wonderful example of collective advocacy where a, uh, a growing group of like-minded partners, donor countries, UN agencies, foundations, philanthropies and the private sector have come together to try and drive more inclusive development humanitarian action, uh, particularly in areas of education, social protection, uh, human ed education, social protection and humanitarian action and data. And what the GLAD network, which last met in Helsinki in January and which Firavanti Wells co-chaired, has agreed and identified is that one of its collective strengths is its collective advocacy. The, um, the way with, with Australia and IDA in the lead, we're helping to actually drive a more collective approach, more collegiate and coordinated approach to influencing other partners to be more disability inclusive. And it's beginning to actually have an impact, which is great to see. For example, um, the World Food Foundation has actually committed in, in response to advocacy from GLAD partners to um, ensure that its new strategic plan is explicitly inclusive of people with disabilities so that food aid, which is being delivered in uh, emergency and humanitarian settings, reaches everybody, including people with disabilities. Um, 
The other area which is a major focus for us every year is the Conference of States Parties to the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabilities. It's a big major event in New York where all the UN member states that are signatories to the UN Convention meet and to monitor implementation of the of the charter of the convention. Sorry, this year for Australia, one of the key highlights for us is that we are to further build on our advocacy efforts, um, including the focus that we have on disability in our uh, seat on the Human Rights Council. We've actually nominated an Australian woman, uh, Rosemary Kays, as our candidate for the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And so a great uh, uh, amount of our effort uh, in, the, in the last few months and for the next few months is actually going into supporting uh, the election of Rosemary to the committee, which will happen um, hopefully on the 12th of June this year. Um, the Conference of States Parties is also important for Australia's advocacy because we are one of the handful of countries that go to uh, the conference with a very strong um, engagement with civil society. We actually um, make sure that we um, fund, the Australian government funds Australian disabled people's organisations to attend the conference so that we can collectively act, advocate on disability uh, broadly but also on the uh, important role that civil society organisations actually have, deliver uh, in the UN system. And finally, the one thing I just wanted to touch on, because this will be of interest to some of the people in the room, uh, something that's coming up on the sec uh, 24th of July is uh, the UK have sort of been taking notice of the leadership role that Australia's had for the last couple of years and in the last six to 12 months have started to actually follow suit and wanting to put their hand up and say, we too would like to be a leader in disability inclusion. And so they have chosen to host a, a global disability summit in London on the 24th of July which will um, help bring together um, ministers and CEOs of major corporations from around the world and aim to further raise um, the profile of this particular issue and hopefully garner new commitments towards disability inclusive development. So if you want to know about the Global Disability Summit, just do a Google search. There's a bit of information out there on, uh, on the DFID website. But it is, a, uh, I think, a, a great example of where DFAT has started the influ uh, influencing partners and other <coughs> partners have picked up the ball and are running with it in their own particular way. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks, Mika. There's a do with a lot of knowledge. Um, our third speaker today, I'm pleased to say, is Mr Colin Allen, who's been asked to provide a response from civil society to the report. Um, Colin has used Australian Sign Language since birth and has been involved in disability rights for over 35 years. Internationally, Colin has worked on capacity building projects for deaf communities in Europe and the Asia Pacific. He has been president of the World Federation of the Deaf since 2011 and is also chair of the International Disability Alliance. At IDA, at IDA, Colin is responsible for guiding and representing IDA's engagement with the UN system and other human rights and development organisations. He has represented IDA at a number of key international meetings, including at the event on the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, CRPD, committee session meetings in Geneva, at the annual States Parties Conference of the CRPD, the United Nations High Level Meeting on Disability and Development in New York and the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. 
Colin represented IDA and was involved in the inaugural Global Action on Disability or GLAD network meeting in London in 2015 that Miki just mentioned as co-chair. Arali also undertook a GLAD events in Berlin in 2017 and Helsinki in 2018. Colin has presented workshops on issues related to human rights for persons with disability and the deaf community in more than 60 committees. We welcome Colin um, and his interpreter, Rebecca Lab. Thank you. Summit, 
and the benefits that that had in terms of the development of the charter for persons with disabilities. And Ida, together with DFAT, took a leading role in ensuring that persons with disabilities had a fair go in terms of humanitarian responses. I actually met with the Minister, Senator Conchetta Fioranti Wells. I actually have to abbreviate her name because you can imagine if I had to spell out that very lovely <laughs> name, we actually have to just abbreviate to see if FW and the interpreter knows that she needs to say Conchetta Fioranti Wells. All right, so um, I have to say I can't believe how involved she was in terms of co-chairing at international events and the support that she provides to persons with disabilities indirectly in that way. And I really want to recognise her work. We also strongly welcome Australia's leadership during the negotiation of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As Karen mentioned, there, that led to the achievement of 11 references to persons with disabilities in the 2030 Agenda. And that has huge worth going forward for people with disabilities. All right, when Australia set up the capacity building training programs, DFAT was very supportive in that work too, and in our progress in strengthening the field for all those groups, organisations of persons with disabilities, commonly known as DPOs. And I think also, as has been said, DFAT really led the work, and they were very much behind the impetus that has occurred in terms of the Global Action on Disability Network. And maybe I don't need to refer to this again as it has already been specifically addressed by Mika, but DFAT and Ida both shared the role as co-chairs. And I felt very privileged as an Australian, as the Ida chair as well, to really see that the Australian government had focused their support within that sphere of activity and that we were able to lead GLAD as co-chairs together. We believe that this commitment and successful history of DFAT's involvement in disability inclusive development is really due to the following reasons and I want to give a few examples. In terms of strategic foci and in terms of the organisations that benefit, what DFAT has done is provided very timely funding and they've actually selected a strategic group of organisations to, to influence disability inclusive development. And how that's successful is because of the engagement and that leads to huge gains the aligning strategy that actually then meets the needs of persons with disabilities. The technical capacities and the knowledge of DFAT staff, as has also been mentioned, is just amazing in terms of the support that is provided to the disability movement. 
both disability rights and international processes. DFATs start over the years have demonstrated significant knowledge of disability rights and disability inclusive development. Going on, there has also been a high, very high level commitment, political commitment of DFAT leadership and the presence of DFAT leadership and staff at numerous events, as I mentioned previously, GLAD being one example. And with the Senator being there, not once but twice since the foundation of GLAD, approximately four years ago. When we look forward, we really believe that DFAT should continue the strategic approach that it's shown over the past and that should continue into the future in specifically targeting issues, in ensuring that there is funding provided to enable capacity building that there is support provided to enable those core activities, to enable those organisations to have a strategic focus and actually facilitate that advocacy that needs to occur. It is not only to do with strategic organisations and their capacities, but it's also to look at international advocacy, for example, through the GLAD network and the importance of DFAT's representation there. To reflect briefly on the evaluation itself, we welcome its findings. And I think it's appropriate that I discuss or address a few of them. We believe that we are now in the moment in which even more investment is needed to secure the advocacy and policy gains that were made by a number of the stakeholders, including both IDA and DFAT. The gains, however, are not sustainable and we often see that the continuous presence of advocacy, if not secured, some of those gains will be lost and we need to ensure that doesn't occur. Therefore, statements such as, and I say this in inverted commas, disability inclusion is now an integral part of humanitarian and development frameworks should be really explored in great detail and carefully examined. While we are aware that a lot's been achieved, we need to do even more to sustain these gains and to make even more process as we move into the future. What we are unfortunately observing is that we are still experiencing setbacks. Unfortunately, <coughs> there's increased discrimination, segregation and exclusion. 
both in the global south and also the global north countries. The work ahead for us is indeed the joint work of member states, UN agencies and DPOs. This work needs to be equipped in order to promote the development and human rights of persons with disabilities, to ensure those rights are realised. This is why it's key to connect the implementation of the CRPD and the SDGs, and why it's crucial to have and to continue the partnership between IDA and DFAT. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Colin. That was um, uh, excellent to get the perspective of yourself and your experience. And uh, I have to confess, and I've, I've tried not to do this, is that I was in New York when we did the Sustainable Development Goals. And I have to say that the alliance we had with Vlad and his team with IDA, or IDA, let's call them IDA, um, in New York was, was probably one of the most satisfying partnerships that we had. You have a lot of advocacy groups coming to you in New York to advocate that's forestry or climate, etc. <coughs> but I found that the professional approach of, of Ida and the way in which they thought about what they wanted in particular negotiations made it very easy for us to engage in the advocacy work. And it was also two ways. So we could actually go back to it and say, I think you need to pitch this a different way to be effective. And I think it was a real partnership. We got an enormous amount from Ida, and I think we actually contribute a bit to them as well. So I just wanted to say that to pass on to your organisation, that they were probably one of the most um, professional, effective yeah, partners that we, we've come across. Um, now, I think we're doing a, a question and answer panel now. So um, is there any, anyone fire the first salvo? Hello, Eddie. I just want to say thank you to everyone on the panel. Um, I and thank you, Colin. It's lovely to see you. Um, my name is Shelley Thompson. I'm a member of the, or privileged to be a member of the disability section. Um, noting that this ODE reviews come out, we're also starting to consider and think about the next strategy, um, because this current strategy is for 2021. So the next strategy, you know, we start thinking um, and turning our thoughts to what are we going to look at next and what do we need to continue and what's the next frontier. So my question's mainly for Colin. What is, in this current strategy, we've acknowledged that there's further marginalisation within the disability rights movement and there are groups that are um, more excluded than others, such as people who experience uh, psychosocial disability or mental health conditions. Um, and those with intellectual disability. We know that um, members of the deaf community who may not be members of a community lack language, especially in the Pacific, who don't have access to sign language and things like this. What do you see as the next um, frontier of where Australia could be diverting its efforts and turning its attention to um, and some of these untouched areas that we could start to consider for the next strategy? I might uh, take a couple of questions first. Thanks, Shelley. I'll make a couple of questions first. Um, the, um, the chap down the, the front. 
Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the presenters. Uh, number one goes to the DFAT. Uh, I come from the Google South and uh, I really love the way you're doing your work. When are you spreading your wings towards our part in terms of supporting the DPOs and uh, ensuring that also we rise because most of the time when we read these documents, they are very good, but in practice, in our global south, it's not in existence. Uh, then, to my friend from Ida, uh, thank you for the presentation. I remember very well, 2014 or 2015, there was a team in Kenya and there was a discussion on the SDGs and what we felt should be included and some of our views were taken on board. So my question to him is that uh, I find it that we people in the Global South, our participation is very minimal and also in terms of, I know that uh, IDA is a organization for mainly for major groups of organization, but you find that there is this area of advocacy whereby we have artists with disabilities who can also help to promote the global agenda of SDGs and the issues of inclusion. It's something I think we should uh, start thinking about because we are persons with abilities have the talent to make even other people to be aware of what is happening. Lastly, it's also to differ again. You find that uh, in issues of statistics, I'm not sure why the international community we are able to know the numbers of elephants in our country, even the global south, but we are yet to know the number of persons with abilities. Maybe it's an area, as much as I know you're doing good work in terms of the Washington group and the helping other developing partners to understand, but it's a really a serious thing whereby we are not being known in terms of numbers. And this leaves us in terms of not being planned for or being known in terms of uh, many government activities or even development taking place. Thank you. Thank you very much. I might take another question before I go to the panel. I just had a question about um, what the evaluation might have said. There's obviously a broad range of uh, people with disability and different accommodation needs. So what did the evaluation say about how effective we've been for advocating for, for everybody? Or who is, is there, is, are people being left behind, specific groups of people with disability, or are we able to advocate effectively for, for you know, a broad range of people? Okay, thank you. I'm going to allocate these questions. Um, so the first one was uh, uh, from Shelley around um, uh, to you, Colin, which is around uh, what's the next frontier um, for the second, for the or the third disability for all strategy. And I might get Mika to add his thoughts as well. Thank you, Shelley for raising that specific question. Just a, a slight clarification. 
All right, as a member, obviously, of the sign language community, but also as chair of IDA, I'm obviously representing more broadly persons with disabilities. And I think the IDA board has certainly had some discussion and some deliberations about what our members want and how our members can actually reach their members at a national level. That's what we need to see, I think. We need to see what the difference that is made at a local level for DPOs. So that it's top down and that and bottom up, but that it actually, we have many members, as I said, at a global and regional level, but we're concerned about the impact that is made at a local level within society, within country. And to ensure that people with disabilities are absolutely included. For example, in Australia, and sure, I'm somewhat of an expert because I live here, um, we, all right, we should be outreaching, obviously. Um, we outreach at a, from a federal to a state level and then to a local level. That's how we work. But I don't think that it's really impacting on me as an Australian citizen necessarily. So yes, we've talked about the NDIS and the potential for that, but I'm concerned at that Australian level, where is the voice of persons with disabilities at that level, at a national level? So the local voice influencing the national, uh, what is happening at a national level. And similarly, I think that occurs in other countries too. I think people with, as you mentioned, people with psychosocial disabilities, um, people who have deaf blindness. Um, I think you really need to ensure that you cover each of the disabilities effectively and that the strategy is not just too targeted to, towards one to the disadvantage of others. And I think if people just try and put themselves in the shoes of, say, for example, a deaf blind person, how difficult that would be, would be. We need to actually measure what the impact is for them and how that might differ, for example, for somebody that is deaf or hard of hearing. And, and I think there is a, a lot from that and the difference in point of view between the various groups too and ensuring that those are taken into account. If we go back to the deaf-blind example, and this is obviously just one example, but I think we need to enhance the impact on them to ensure that they are actually included. Because it's easy to focus on a specific um, unilateral disability group, specific disability group, i.e. Deaf, deaf people or blind people, but when there's a combination of the two disabilities, it, the issue becomes exacerbated. So I think we need to measure some of that as well, and that needs to be reflected in the strategy so that we adopt a big, uh, a big picture approach. Now, from a personal point of view, I've been involved in many international um, scenarios. I've done a lot of international work, but my concern and maybe I'm really just repeating myself, but is really to see the measurement and the impact at a more local level. Yes, at the international level, level it maybe looks good, but I'm concerned at that more, the local level. I hope I've answered your question, but um, yes, that's, that would be my response from the civil society's point of view. 
And I think disability policy is great, but I think it needs to be really disaggregated and to become much more transparent so you can actually see the effect on the lives of persons with disabilities on an everyday basis. Thank you, Colin. I might um, pass to Mika just to add to the, the frontier for the next strategy, but also if you could pick up the question that um, I think Paul raised around statistics uh, to sort of talk about that as well. Sure. Um, so the current disability strategy, which runs till 2020, has, is built around certain principles and certain areas of focus. When that strategy uh, expires, concludes at the end of 2020, and as noted by the evaluation, we need to think about what's next. So what we are going to do, we DFAT are going to do, is we are going to be starting a conversation, I guess today is the beginning of that conversation, with our key international partners, uh, IDA, our uh, partners in, uh, in the UN, our domestic partners, and basically put the question to them, what should we be focusing on going forward beyond 2020? One reason why Australia's advocacy has been so effective and why our work around disability inclusive development has been so effective is because we've been smart and we've been targeted in what we've been doing. We don't try and do everything. We don't have the resources and the means to do everything. So we need to be very clever about where we put our efforts. And so my feeling is that the next version of the strategy, which needs to be developed over the next two years or so, has to think very carefully about where we can have the greatest impact on the lives of people with disabilities in developing countries. Now, the question about statistics and counting elephants. Um, it, why is it so difficult to count people with disabilities? Well, disability is not just a, a given. It's not a, a yes-no um, dichotomy. An elephant is an elephant. But a person with a disability may or may not be a person with a disability, depending on the situation that they are in. Um, Counting people with disabilities is not as easy as asking in a census or a questionnaire, do you have a disability? That does not work. Uh, people don't answer honestly, either because they don't recognise themselves as having a disability or because of issues around stigma and discrimination where they don't wish to acknowledge that they have a disability. You need to be very clever in how you actually uh, collect information about people with disabilities so that you can actually ensure that your development programs are actually reaching them. So, uh, it, disability is a continuum, and working out where you draw uh, the threshold on that continuum for the delivery of services, for example, is a policy decision, but it's hard to actually make that policy decision in the absence of having clear information about who has what type of impairment and are they person with a disability and how much does that disability impact on their ability to participate on an equal basis with others. Thank you very much. I'm just conscious of time. What I might do is ask Karen maybe to say a few words also around where she thinks the future of the disability strategy should go um, and also maybe pick up some of Jenny's point about is anyone being left behind in what we're doing? And I might end, if it's okay, Colin, um, for you to uh, pick up Paul's point about how to engage the participation of the global self and also your your perspectives around being left. You've, you've covered it a bit, but in terms of areas that might might be being left behind at the moment. So, Karen, you want to start? So, um, in answering Jenny's question first, so um, 
large component of Australians' leadership has been innovative and being ambitious, and that has included looking, broadening the agenda, looking at a range of disabilities and thinking, thinking about how to work with them. So Australia has already started to fund work uh, advocating for inclusion of people with psychosocial disabilities, and I think it's recognised that Australia is pushing that area. Um, in terms of the next strategy in general, having completed this evaluation, you know, we came to the conclusion was that whatever we do next in the next strategy, advocacy has still got to be a major part of that work. And, um, and I agree with what Mika said, what the next strategy involves will involve is looking at what is most important and what is practical and then pursuing that. All right, Paul. All right. Uh, in terms of response to your question and your comments about persons with disabilities and the participation of persons with disabilities, particularly from the global south, maybe I think we could reflect together, potentially over coffee, I think it's a huge question that can't be responded to in a very short forum like today. But I think, too, from an either perspective, we need to ensure that we have representatives on our board um, from the Global South, also that people from the Global South are encouraged to approach the UN with their voluntary national reports. And I think that Ida, Ida also is very involved in that voluntary national review, um, which occurs every year and happens also under the High Level Political Forum. I was very pleased that I, would, that I actually had the opportunity to lead a group um, of stakeholders from the Global South um, at the HLPF Forum, and those people then had an opportunity to acquire information and then hopefully that it could, it could be um, disseminated within their country. Because I think often people have heard of the 2030 Agenda, but what impact is it really having? I think what we need to ensure that that, that occurs is that that information is disseminated within local communities, within countries, within to DPOs and that those effective linkages are then made to people on the ground. It's not an easy job and it's not a, there isn't an easy answer. But it's a fact that I think education is, the, is often the key um, and because knowledge is power and I think the, the CRPD has a large part to play if we give people specific training within the Global South, for example, then they can find out more about what the difference is or the distinction between the SDGs and the CRPD, but it's a very slow process to actually realise um, people's aims and goals and ensure that they really do have a voice and so that they are actually able to participate effectively in the voluntary national reviews that are sent for, that are provided to the UN. Sorry, you can see I sound very fast, and um, the interpreter. But I was, but and the interpreter had a bit of trouble keeping up at the very end. But I was very mindful of time here, so I was trying to. Thank you very much, Ramos. Ramos, thank you very much, Colin, Mika, and Karen. That was um, that was a really good uh, discussion. Um, I might just set up. I actually think the whole thing's been a, a really good, really good conversation, a good exercise. Um, as evaluators, we often get accused of just focusing on the negatives, so it's actually quite 
good to actually look at where we've been successful and what have been the factors to it, but also not rest on our laurels and really take forward, you know, thinking about well, where do we go from here and how do we build on this, how do we, how do we leverage off our, our leadership position to, to shape the global discussion on disability inclusive development. I think we didn't have the probe on the methodology I thought we might get from this crowd. Um, I think it'd be useful to have a conversation about that at some point down the track. So it is something we're going to do more and more on. How do you, how do you really get a handle on how effective we are in terms of this influencing influencing um, agenda? Um, I have to say too that um, our work on disability inclusion is not all positive. Um, Karen has been doing a lot of work over the last 12 months on our mainstreaming and work on disability inclusion and humanitarian. And I think that's a, a tougher picture for us, um, where we're sort of really getting into some really um, um, forensic work on what's working and what's not working so well. So I think it'd be useful um, to have another conversation when that um, report comes out. I think that's going to be going to be much more sort of um, uh, 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 good and not so good parts to it, which I think is is just as valuable to learn about. So I might just finish off by saying, uh, if we could thank the the presenters uh, for the for the presentations. And next, and for the concluding uh, section of the today's uh, event, we're just going to invite Jim Adams up to share some of his thoughts, both on what he's heard today and also on the state of evaluations within DFAT more generally. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thank you. I'll actually do that in the reverse order. I'll talk a little bit about evaluation and what the IEC does, and then I'll comment a bit on some of the discussions today. Um, I have to say, uh, you know, very much like Colin, there are a couple of things that have already been said, but I'll repeat them because I feel strongly about them. Um, my, my, my first thing, the IEC was set up five and a half years ago, so we've been meeting regularly now for five and a half years. And we've really been well supported both within, DFID, within DFAT, but also, I think, very much by these discussions that have done in collaboration with ANU. Um, it is not many places where you get systematic reviews by outside groups of evaluation work. It doesn't happen more generally, in my experience. And that that has happened systematically here, I think, is both um, an important complement to the work that ANU has been prepared to support but also the engagement of DFAT in that work. Uh, we review everything that the, the OD does, so we, we have real responsibility for these reports. So you'll see that I will behave reasonably consistent with that. But we are independent and, and you know, have been given a great deal of independence in the discussions. We've consistently found that when we had issues or questions, whether they were broad questions about the quality of reports or whether they were more narrow questions, about some of the quality review processes within DFAT. We've gotten good support from both the management um, of DFAT and also we've worked very closely with ODE on those issues. So I, I just want to make a couple of points on, on the evaluation side. I think what we struggle with very often is this question of quality and ensuring the accountability of evaluations are appropriate. But that has to be balanced with a concern about is this information getting out? Are people learning? And here I'll be a little tougher than, than Peter. Um, his message about support from senior management is accurate, and I simply want to reinforce that. We have consistently been supported, and the importance of what we're doing has been supported by senior management. But I still worry about the dissemination and our 
DFAT staff, and more generally, people working in areas that the evaluations are focusing on, fully absorbing the work. And I think that is an issue, and it's something we have to work with in terms of the communication. I, I don't think that's exceptional, but I think it's the one major part of the evaluation function in, in DFAT that, that is not as far as it should be. I think in almost every other area, I can argue fairly forcefully that DFAT is very much at, you know, at, at, the, at the top range of international standards with respect to evaluation. On, on dissemination, I don't think it's a problem unique to DFAT, but I do think it's the one area that I would argue still needs work and still needs emphasis. In that respect, again, these sessions, I think, are an important check on that. But, you know, we have a handful of people here, and we always get a good participation, typically of people that are interested in the topic. But if you, if you ask me, the numbers of people involved in disability, um, both on the DFAT side and more, more broadly within Australia, this is obviously a very small section. Are they interested in evaluations? How do we get the information from evaluation, I think, is an, is an outstanding challenge. I'll move on to comments about today's session. Uh, I comment on this partly as, as an interested observer. When I was in the World Bank, um, working in the central policy side, I was actually there when the bank started thinking about how to deal with disabilities in the early 2000s. Um, in that respect, I very much want to support the point that was made about the need to put a great deal of pressure on the MDBs in terms of their performance, in terms of implementation. And here I want to go to my major theme where I'll pick up a point Peter began to introduce. The advocacy side of this evaluation is actually the positive side. Um, the less positive side is going to be the next sequence, which talks about the actual performance on the ground. And here I don't want to single out DFAT, but I think generally within the development community, the record on advocacies both a lot better than respect to, um, with respect to implementation on the ground, but also probably a little easier in terms of building coalitions and getting decisions made at a very high level. Putting in place appropriate disability responsive programs at the country level is where the challenge is. Um, to, the, to, to your colleague from the division, Mika, all I can say is I don't think you need more strategies on on disability and DFAT. I think you've done a good job of that. I think the challenge now is how to translate those strategies into effective action on the ground. And this is not an easy area, and it's not going to be easy to do. The countries you're working with in the South don't have the resources that Australia has to manage this problem. And they have a lot of other problems where Australia, Australia doesn't face. And so I think getting that priority at the country level. And on this, given my experience, I thought I'd just make a couple of observations. First of all, the point Kenya made about, our, our, our colleague from Kenya made about local DPOs are absolutely critical to this argument. Because while international DPOs have a key role to play in strengthening local DPOs, my experience is on an issue like this, the support and capacity of local DPOs are going to be critical to building local programs that are actually going to work. I want to make a point about uh, staying the course, and I have, a, I have an example of this which I, which I saw firsthand from some work I did last year. In Ethiopia, the Finns have spent over 25 years working on disability and particularly working with the deaf and the blind in terms of education. 
And they did a lot of things right. They took Ethiopians out. Finland has a strong program in this area. They trained them in their best universities. Ethiopians who, among, in addition to being experts on disability programs, actually are all fluent in Finnish. And they sent them back to Ethiopia, and, and nothing happened. So they waited five years. They waited 10 years. And over the last five years, an enormous amount has happened in education. I want to emphasize this is with respect to education, that they were not getting the programs in the education system to support the local disabled communities. But what happened over the last five years is education in Ethiopia and participation in education in Ethiopia moved from being at the 40% level to the 80% level. And all of a sudden, the problem of the disability students became obvious to the government. If they wanted to move beyond 80%, putting in place stronger programs and supporting this expertise, which had been there working in Ethiopia more actively by the government, became a priority of the government. So by staying the course on these issues and working, I think, effectively over time, there can be some outstanding examples of where this makes an important difference and, in fact, produced in Ethiopia now experience which are very much um, at the best level of developing country experience in Africa. I want to make a point about efficiency, and it's a particularly important um, issue as you build capacity within these countries. A lot of investment from donors, both multilateral donors and bilateral donors, goes into infrastructure. A proper focus on disability needs at the beginning of building infrastructure is absolutely critical to getting this issue done. And it's the most effective case that can be made with governments. Because you ask a government to rebuild a building after it's built, it has enormous expense to deal with disability issues. If you put the funds at the beginning to make sure those infrastructures are disability appropriate, it's both a lot less expensive and it's going to be much more sustainable over time. Finally, just a point on best practices. Um, one of the good things, I think, about the work that's being done at the, at the operational level and that you'll see will certainly point to many problems, but it'll also begin to identify some good practices. And I think those are going to be a critical part of scaling up the operational program. Because if you're asking someone to deal with disabilities and they're experts in health or they're experts in education, giving them the advantage of understanding where it was done effectively with a clear model is an important part of getting that person to move from being a bit skeptical about what they can do about disability to being important advocates about what they can do. And I think that will be an important message that emerges from the subsequent evaluation. And I think looking forward to that as a somewhat less positive discussion than today in terms of actual, actual impact, I think will become an important next part of this dialogue about disability. So I'll close there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you once again to all our speakers and to you, the audience, for coming along today. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.